Welcome back, everybody. I'm Cass Piancy, and I am here as usual with my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. It's hot. It's really hot here right now, and uh, that's a little uncomfortable. Today, we are going to be discussing two topics, which is going to be regulatory capture and regulatory arbitrage. I think that actually some people might not be familiar with either of these topics. Regulatory capture, as defined by Investopedia, is an economic theory that regulatory agencies may come to be dominated by the interests they regulate and not by the public interest. My go-to example of regulatory capture lately is the Federal Aviation Administration, which Boeing had some issues with their 787 MAX, and a lot of that brought to the attention of Congress and the American people that the FAA had been aware of some of these problems and had failed to do anything about them because they were just in too tight with the people they were trying to regulate. The other definition I want to go over is regulatory arbitrage, which is a corporate practice of utilizing more favorable laws in one jurisdiction to circumvent less favorable regulation elsewhere. I think a great example of this is just outright tax evasion, where people will move all of their money to some offshore domicile so that they don't have to pay taxes in their country. But we're going to get into all, all of this right now. Bennett, do you think that the cryptocurrency ecosystem is beginning to suffer from a bit of regulatory capture? I think cryptocurrency companies have certainly recognized the advantage to bringing on former regulators. And we're seeing increasingly an understanding that crypto needs to integrate and interface with those regulatory agencies. I think one of the most clear examples for me is Brooks coming over to Binance US and becoming the CEO of that exchange straight out of a US regulatory agency, where you're really seeing that, yeah, these regulatory agencies are getting in deeper and deeper with these cryptocurrency exchanges. And there's a inherent danger to that on two separate ends. So one, you have the obvious concept, which is the reason these regulators are being hired after working for a regulatory agency is that they will hold sway with the new regulators in place and they can alter the minds of those people because they previously were regulators. The other part of this that I don't think is considered necessarily by everyone and what I've seen when looking through career compliance people and stuff like that is that they almost always start their careers as public servants and within a few years have moved on to private practice. I don't know if that speaks to a lack of incentives for public servants to do good work or if it just means there's way too many incentives for them to go to private work and help them. I think you can make a lot more working for these private companies and leaving the government work. And I think it's, we're talking about crypto because that's what our podcast is about, but this isn't a problem that's unique to crypto either. In a lot of the financial stuff and in a lot of the stuff like that, you see like this revolving door where people will get a spot in the SEC because of their experience in business, stay in the SEC for a couple of years and then hop back out for a much higher salary. Now back in the private sector, there's this revolving door where we see these people going back and forth. And that process is what ends up creating this regulatory capture we're talking about. As opposed to the last episode where we weren't going to name names, I think it's okay to name names in this case because we're talking about people 
who were public figures and now have made a point of going into private practice for these companies. So you already mentioned Brian Brooks. I think a really important one is Mary Beth Buchanan, who worked for the SEC and is now working to defend XRP. We have Chris Giancarlo, who's moved from being a regulator to taking on roles, working for a law firm, defending cryptocurrency advocates. He's also on the advisory board of the Chamber of Digital Commerce. He's clearly a big advocate for all this stuff. And we also have Paul Grewal works for Coinbase. And this is a kind of an important one that I was un unaware of. He used to be a district court judge in the Northern California district, which is where it just so happens Coinbase was headquartered. I guess you could say they're not headquartered there anymore. But this happens a lot more than, than we give it credit for happening. And it also is a sign of a couple things. One, a maturing industry. You obviously are going to want regulators on your side. But also, once you get regulatory capture, it becomes impossible to stop frauds while they're transpiring. Uh, a, another great example is Bernie Madoff. I mean, Bernie Madoff, by just by being the president of NASDAQ and by just being known as the guy who did this miraculous trading, he had regulatory capture. He had regulators on his side. And I hope we don't see that with cryptocurrency, but I'm starting to think it's an inevitability, as uh, so many people in the space like to say. I think for me, related to this, a lot of what we're seeing is just a lack of political will to go after corporate fraud cases, to go after white-collar crime. Without that kind of political will and the funding behind it, the regulators have no motivation to do it, right? And so then you see them, like I'm thinking of like Elon Musk, right? He has clearly violated his settlement decree who God only knows how many times, right? And yet the SEC still won't go after him because there's just not the political will to go after that kind of figure, right? And this also then leads into back to like, to like the revolving door I was talking about before. Because there's the lack of funding, because there's not the high profile cases, because there's not the notoriety, the status given to the position, you see a lot of them then cycle out of the regulatory agencies back into these private companies and help those private companies then deal with the regulators in a way that protects the companies, right? And which then makes it even harder for the regulators if they wanted to, to even go after those companies. So it ends up in this like self-fulfilling cycle that depends on there being political will to go after and to prosecute white collar criminals. My fear is that the only way to stop regulatory capture for at least a short period of time is for there to be some sort of collapse I mean, what, when you see two planes straight up fall out of the sky and it's not pilot air, you go, why did the FAA allow this plane to ever fly? We saw a similar thing in 0708 where regulators were caught with their pants down, weren't doing anything. Then they act. When everything is already collapsed, that's when they begin to act. A great example of this, and everyone brings it up and it's worth bringing up, is the New York Department of Financial Services did the... Bit license that was so hard and difficult to get. What do they ever do to enforce that? What happens if your exchange is caught trading in New York? Nothing. Now, the New York AG is a separate entity. I'm not trying to suggest the attorney general of New York is not doing everything in their power to try to stop the things they can, but they also have a million other more important things on their plate besides something as insignificant as tether. 
Yeah, and in an ideal world, we don't want it to be the New York Attorney General utilizing this pretty broad blue sky anti-fraud statute in the Martin Act to go after these international companies who are taking advantage of this regulatory arbitrage, because those are really hard cases to bring, and those are really hard cases to prosecute, and getting the assets, getting the people are really hard, complicated, like, criminal justice things. And so the best people to be handling that kind of thing are not state-level regulators. It's almost always going to be the federal regulators. And like you mentioned, the bit license, I think that's a great example. What did the New York Department of Financial Services end up doing with that? They sent, what, like two strongly worded letters to people who they thought might be in violation of it and then just moved on? Like, it's been a nothing for this entire time. And just a roadblock for probably any good players and any bad players just ignore it. So what does it accomplish? Nothing. But this is going to bring us to our second point, which is regulatory arbitrage, which I think is something that is heavily, heavily practiced in cryptocurrency. So basically the way it works in cryptocurrency, from what I can tell and what uh, cryptocurrency advocates seem to be convinced of, is that if you set up these companies and these assets in jurisdictions that aren't associated with the United States of America, where we have harsher laws and stricter regulatory practices and guidelines that you need to follow, then you are outside the scope of that for the time being until wherever you are, whatever jurisdiction this is, decides to either implement those or something similar. I think we've seen time and time again that that is not exactly how it works. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking of historic cases here like Liberty Reserve, where you saw them trying to use a type of regulatory arbitrage by setting up largely in Costa Rica and trying to avoid as much as they could the uh, U.S. regulatory regimes. And yet they still ended up getting taken down by the Department of Justice. And I think you've specifically talked about how Binance uses regulatory arbitrage like as a foundational part of their business model before. You want to talk about that for a minute? It became quite obvious when the block did their piece about offices in China and Binance's response was basically, we're going to sue you for even writing this article. But then they quickly dropped that idea. Then there was a piece by Michael Del Castillo about how Binance US was totally a play to just shuffle money around. And they had the same response, which was to say, we're going to sue you. And then they immediately did not do it or they did it and then dropped it instantly. And so this regulatory arbitrage that Binance does, which is to suggest that one, they have no offices, two, they started, I think, in China originally, then they moved supposedly to Malta, though when you check Maltese records, like they never actually fully set up in Malta. Then now they're in, I think, British Virgin Islands is what is being said, or they're on some island now. But they're going to keep suggesting that they're here and they're here and they're there. Honestly, the best example that comes to mind recently is BitMEX. Here you had people from many different countries, actually. We were talking two U.S. citizens and an English citizen and a guy in Bermuda. And they're they're all going to be tried by U.S. courts. They might not do time. They might settle. They might, however it might turn out. But being located in the Seychelles changed nothing. See, I'm not sure that it changed nothing. My impression of a lot of these regulatory arbitrage strategies is they work so long as you stay below a certain threshold. If you're not big enough or important enough to matter to the U.S. government, you can get away with it for a long time. But eventually you cross some threshold, you draw the attention of the regulators, and then they're willing to use the long arm of the U.S. justice system to go after you. 
Yes, and there's other methods to regulatory arbitrage. I think a part of regulatory arbitrage, at least in my mind, is the idea of extradition. So people like Paul LaRue, who was basically just a black market drug dealer and a brilliant man, but he did something where he moved to Brazil, became a citizen of Brazil, and had a baby with a woman in Brazil. And at the time, that made it so that you couldn't be extradited from Brazil. That law is not intact anymore, but that was the case at the time. I think another great example is one we've talked about before, the two fugitives remaining from Crypto Capital Corps. As far as anyone knows, they're both located safe and sound in Israel right now. And yet trying to get Israel to extradite a couple multi-million dollar fugitives is kind of impossible. So we've looped back around to where we were at kind of before. Without political will, without a desire to go after white-collar criminals, it is often possible to use regulatory capture, regulatory arbitrage, to reduce the risks of you doing these unlawful things. And so that's what you see a lot of these cryptocurrency businesses doing. You see Bitfinex existing simultaneously in Taiwan, Hong Kong, the British Virgin Islands, and all these other places because their goal is to make it as hard as possible for people to come after them. And that's that's why Binance doesn't want to have an office, because they don't want there to be a place that people can go and find the executives. Because that's that it's an attack surface, right? Any of these people that can be found, any assets that can be seized are an attack surface for an illegal enterprise. I actually think that's a great place to end it. I think we covered what regulatory capture and arbitrage are and why they're so present in the cryptocurrency space. I think you just touched on specifically why, which is attack surface. So cryptocurrency is all about decentralization, this and privacy, that this is a good way for them to both sound like they care about the morals and ethics of cryptocurrency while also trying to shrink their attack surface. That's going to do it for this episode. Join us next week when we talk about BitClout, this social media cryptocurrency that is backed by some weird VC money. Thanks for listening.